0: So this is kind of like a Copernican revolution in thinking. If you remember, Nicholas Copernicus was the 16th century astronomer who who figured out that actually the sun was at the center of the solar system, not the earth. When he did that, everything fell into place. All the mathematics made sense and everything else. Similarly, when you put purpose at the center of a business ecosystem, everything makes sense and you have the right lens through which you can identify what the right stakeholders are to help you as a business unit to deliver that shared purpose that's bringing these stakeholders together.
1: Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose and integrity. I'm your host Tobias Tuason, and I'm the co-founder of Heart Management. How do we live out our corporate values and purpose with integrity? It's something that's easy to say but it's not as easy to do. Too often corporate values or purpose statements become either a shield against justified criticism or merely some meaningless statement we articulate to seem more attractive, whether that's to prospective employees or customers. When our values make us want to assume that we are good and ethical, they might even lead us to an increased propensity for unethical behavior. However, I believe there is power in an organization that knows and lives by principles that they are willing to sacrifice short-term success for. The thing is, living out values and purpose is a wrestle. One of the more interesting examples I've seen of an organization that engages that wrestle is the Mars Corporation. Mars is a $38 billion privately owned company. It's a well-known chocolate manufacturer, but it's also the world's largest pet food producer. At Mars, they seem to allow their values and principles to challenge them in a way that is highly unusual. It has even led to the development of a new model of capitalism. But I'm getting ahead of myself. To discuss the example of Mars, I'm honored to have a conversation with Jay Jacob. Jay is the co-author of Completing Capitalism, Heal Business to Heal the World. He worked for 14 years at Mars, where he served as the Senior Director of External Research. And currently he serves as the Chief Advocacy Officer at the Economics and Mutuality Movement, a nonprofit that is financed by Mars. <laughs> Jay, it's really a privilege to have you on the podcast today.
0: Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here.
1: I I wanted to start with a a little like personal question. So how are you doing? We are in the beginning of a new year after a very disruptive 2020, and it feels so far like 2021 might be kind of a a bit chaotic as well. So how are you doing?
0: Uh, I'm thankfully doing well. I feel uh, blessed to be in good health Uh, and also in a a new home that's a little bit larger so that I can uh, continue to work from home, like many of my colleagues and and also countrymen during this terrible pandemic.
1: So I would like us to go back in time. How and when did the idea and principle of mutuality begin at the Mars Corporation?
0: Well, Mars is is a very unique corporation in many ways, and it operates under five principles. That actually are uh, on the wall everywhere, but also spoken by most Mars executives when they're making decisions, and we all know these by heart: their quality, responsibility, mutuality, efficiency, and freedom. And I think it's really this mutuality principle that uh, that makes the company distinctive. And um, in 1947, uh, Forrest Mars Sr., who was kind of the founding uh, kind of business genius uh, around Mars, uh, he uh, ran the company as the CEO and the sole a uh, shareholder of the company for for almost six decades i believe in 1947 he wanted to codify the uh, principles of the company and the objective of the company and so he wrote this letter that actually surfaced from the uh, the Mars family archives uh, on the day that we were uh, launching uh, economics of mutuality as a concept uh, many years ago almost 14 years ago now and in that letter he laid out the objective of Mars as being what he called the promotion of mutuality of a mutuality of service and benefits Across the entire range of stakeholders, and then he described those stakeholders, starting with consumers, and then talking about distributors, competitors, suppliers, governmental bodies, employees, and then he said, and then the shareholders uh, at the bottom, almost of a hierarchy. And I found it um, uh, this letter very uh, uh, revealing uh, about Mars and about its principles and about the the thoughts of its founder, because. You know, most companies today, if they talked about um, the objective of the company and listed its stakeholders, it might talk first about its shareholders. And the shareholders would certainly be at the top. And they certainly wouldn't talk about competitors. And Forrest Mars had this completely reversed. He was thinking that uh, that really it's consumers at the top, that competitors also have to be dealt with. In a way that's that's mutually beneficial. So we're talking about mutuality as a recipro- as reciprocity, as reciprocally beneficial relationships. And then he had the uh, the shareholders relegated all the way to the bottom. Uh, so I think that speaks volumes about uh, uh, where he wanted the company to go. And I believe the company has stayed true
1: to those principles uh, by and large. So I found that values and principles can never give us all the answers, but at their best they lead us to ask some challenging questions and questions that could lead to significant change. And could you share the story of the rather unusual question that really sparked a lot of what you're doing today at Mars, that that's really kind of started a process of change?
0: Absolutely. This was a, uh, a really important moment in, uh, in certainly my life and the life of those Uh, on our team that have actually worked on economics and mutuality, which I know we're gonna talk about today uh, at some length. But uh, Mars is a family owned privately held business. So Mars is actually the name of the the Mars family. And there are three branches of that family and those three branches own all of the shares. And John Mars, who's the leader of one of those branches, he actually went to his CEO and CFO uh, at the end of 2006, early 2007, uh, right about the time I was actually joining Mars. And he asked them a very interesting question coming from a shareholder. In some ways, it's kind of profound. He said, what should the right level of profit be for the company? And this is interesting because, you know, most shareholders today would actually only ask that question if uh, they were trying to get an answer that would be the most profit that you could possibly squeeze out of the value chain. But actually, uh, John, who explained this uh, a bit later uh, to us, uh, was really asking it from a very different perspective. He was talking about the the value chain of any corporation, including Mars, being only as strong as its weakest link. And so if, if Mars was taking too much profit from a value chain partner, it could be creating a squeezing effect of one value chain partner squeezing another, squeezing another. This would create a disequilibrium that would ultimately be disadvantageous to Mars and would also make it less resilient, a very kind of... Um, uh, insightful question, and then when we looked at it, at this uh, question when it was given to the chief economist of the company, who was the leader of the internal think tank uh, where where I, I worked for for many years, uh, Bruno Roche, that uh, that really we thought is this a new question or is this a really old question, and and then we thought immediately about King Solomon, you know, many centuries ago, asking uh, if uh, saying a man may give freely and uh, may have abundance, while another may hold back more than is right and still to come to be in need. So I think that was kind of um, uh, behind that, that question as well, is that are we taking more than, uh, than we should? And would we come to be in need as a result of that?
1: So what, what happened as the company began to wrestle with this question of the right amount of profit? What, what, what did it become a catalyst of?
0: Well, it became a catalyst for Catalyst, which actually is the name of the internal think tank of Mars, or it was uh, at that time. That question was actually given to uh, to the internal think tank to uh, to take on, to try to assess what the right level of profit was. And uh, typically what we would do in Catalyst when we get a big question like that is we'll take a look uh, around the world and all the literature and try to understand what has already been done thoughtfully about this. And we actually found almost nothing at all in the management literature that tried to address the question of the right level of profit. There was just an assumption that it was as much as you can possibly squeeze out for distribution to the shareholders. And so we really felt like there was a gap in knowledge. Uh, Coming uh, in an organization that is led by the chief economist of the company, uh, it's not surprising that we decided initially to take a metrics-based approach to this and really started to look at the definition of performance uh, across uh, every company and the fact that there's a very robust basket of metrics that businesses use, and uh, almost every business in the world, and almost every business school, uh, you know, either teaches or, or operates under the principles of Milton Friedman and Chicago School of Business and what's called financial capitalism. And so, those metrics are almost entirely financial uh, in nature. But we also were aware that actually there are other forms of capital that are non-financial in nature: social capital, human capital, and natural capitals uh, specifically that actually. Uh, uh, have a great deal of value represent a great deal of value but uh, in business you only manage what you measure and so if you don't actually have the metrics to uh, to measure and intentionally mobilize these other non-financial forms of value that actually you're you're squandering a great deal of value that could be leveraged by businesses for the benefit of its stakeholders but also of its shareholders and so we we started a program that uh, that we named the economics of mutuality because we felt that uh, the mutuality principle uh, that I mentioned earlier among the five core principles of Mars was actually the one that made the company uh, the most distinctive uh, because every every company out there really uh, has some sort of principle that's about quality and maybe about responsibility but really uh, mutuality is not something that is um, uh, that, that is really uh, uh, highlighted uh, but but at Mars it was so we created this uh, this business what became a business model uh, management innovation. Called the economics of mutuality, and uh, I'd be happy to, to walk you through some of that if you have an interest in that. But that's really how we address that question of the right level of profit.
1: And 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 we'll we will walk through it. But I think our our audience should really note something that I think is so interesting about this story is that so based on a question that was connected to the to the principles, to the values, to the purpose of the company as defined even then in in the in 1940, you had kind of an assumption or you had a hypothesis, and then you didn't stop there, but you actually went on to test this on different aspects of the business and and yeah, to 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 kind of try it out and and see what the outcome could be. Could you give some of some examples of what that looked like?
0: Sure. And actually, uh, we were very privileged to be in a in a family unprivately privately held business for the incubation period of this work. Uh, because it was also a company that had a culture of reinvesting the vast majority of the dividend that would normally go to the shareholders back into the company, uh, because the the uh, the ownership really felt as though uh, they needed a long-term perspective, and so Catalyst was actually created as the internal think tank of Mars back in the 1960s by Forrest Mars Sr. Uh, to challenge orthodox business thinking, and this is precisely the kind of question. That uh, that in uh, the start of 2007, you know, 18 months before the last global financial crisis, that a question like this uh, really was was put out there and enabled us to uh, to really take a long term perspective and challenging the orthodox business thinking about financial capitalism and its efficacy in the current uh, economic context. So uh, the first thing that we did is, you know, we have a lot of activities going on in the internal think tank, uh, typically, but we uh, we created a laboratory around economics and mutuality and. And what we invested in that work, it took us about five years, uh, actually, of work experimenting with different ways in which we could measure human, social, and natural capital in ways that uh, that were as simple, stable, robust scientifically, uh, and um, uniform across different market circumstances, across different uh, cultures uh, in the business, because Mars is a global business, and really to, uh, to make metrics applicable in a business sense They really need to be simple, stable, and and uniform. And so our first really big breakthrough came uh, when we were able to develop uh, those metrics around human social and financial capital and then have them externally peer-reviewed and and very usable. Just a quick definition of what I'm talking about when I talk about non-financial capitals. Social capital is a form of capital around people, around labor, that's really at a community level, and it can be isolated around three variables, uh, which are specifically trust social cohesiveness in a community, and the capacity to work collectively. And we found out of, you know, 60 or more variables that together could describe what social capital could look like, uh, which is far too many for a business to make use of, we found that every time we uh, we tested uh, social capital measurement, that actually uh, we came up only with those three variables accounting for almost 80% of what social capital was, which was good enough and certainly simple enough. For us to uh, to utilize in a business sense, human capital was really uh, more expressed at an individual whether uh, individual level in terms of well being in the workplace, and the methodology was created in a uniform way to assess what the uh, true drivers of well being are within any sort of corporate culture. So, in this instance, uh, you know, in the instance of social capital, the metrics are are uniform in the in the sense of um, human capital, it's the methodology that's uniform. But the metrics actually could vary depending on what kind of culture you have. So at Mars, for example, you know, one of the variables uh, that you might consider as a metric uh, intuitively would be, okay, wage disparity as a motivator for well-being. In actual fact, it wasn't even on the uh, on the top five list of what was important to, uh, to associates of Mars, that in actual fact, uh, do managers walk the talk of the values they expo- espouse was actually the number one driver of well-being to get you at what? You could do through growing human capital to actually address that issue and, and give people a greater sense of well being, which has an impact on talent attraction, talent retention, and optimizing people's performance. So it's very impactful in, as you grow the human capital of a company and its workforce on your, uh, on your bottom line, uh, actually, and also on your top line. And then natural capital um, most companies tend to look at natural capital through sustainability or corporate social responsibility initiatives that are based around output metrics like carbon footprint, for example. And there's nothing wrong with that, that's totally fine, but it's not uh, very helpful to use an external reporting or benchmarking marking metric to um, provide tools in a business model context to help managers managed to more environmentally friendly and more uh, resource efficient outcomes. And so we took what was called an inputs approach on natural capital, isolated with uh, external thought partners on this five core metrics that actually accounted for about 80% of of the natural resources, natural capital that went into the manufacture of anything from an automobile to a bag of rice, to a a candy bar, a Mars bar. And so uh, we had our, we had A very high level of confidence after those five years of working on the metrics that we could measure human, social, and natural capital uh, in ways that were comparable to to financial capital. The next breakthrough then came when we discovered, uh, through our experiments in the field, uh, a strong correlation between human, social, and natural capital and releasing economic performance, which would then release financial capital. And this is absolutely crucial, Tobias, because uh, once we found that correlation, which we now are uh, going about proving causality... Uh, we realize that actually you you do not have to trade profit to do some good for people and planet in ways that don't typically scale because they're not profitable enough to be self-sustaining. In actual fact, we can reposition the company and use these non-financial metrics as what are called KPIs in business, key performance indicators, incentives that managers have to deliver to get their bonuses that, and teach them how to deliver social human or natural capital. And by so doing grow those social, human, and natural capital aspects in the value chains of business activities and wind up actually delivering sometimes more than two times the retained earnings uh, that you would if you were simply pursuing the money, if you were chasing the profit maximizing. So this is really at the core of what we're doing. And if you'd like, I can can walk you through some specific um, businesses that we actually set up from among the poorest of the poor to um, uh, to the wealthiest of the wealthy type of consumers to test this and what the results were, if that would be of interest to your
1: listeners, I would I would love to to hear an example like that.
0: Okay, so when we after we cracked the metrics piece, uh, one of the uh, uh, the leaders at Mars uh, who was made the president of uh, Mars Wrigley, uh, which was uh, Wrigley's the big chewing gum company that was acquired by Mars in two thousand and eight, uh, this gentleman named Martin Radvan uh, was a strong supporter of what it was we were doing. And once he saw the metrics and he saw the other findings, he said, OK, now I want you to demonstrate this in a real business activity. Create a business using your economics and mutuality metrics and new management practices and show me how this works. And you don't have to, to make a profit by it uh, because we understand it's probably a social business type of activity. But try to break even and we'll see what we can learn. So he took us to uh, East Africa, uh, where, where Wrigley actually had uh, its only factory uh, in all of, uh, of Africa. And also uh, an ambition to really grow the business in Africa, uh, but a model that really didn't uh, work very well in uh, scaling up business and addressing less developed demographics uh, in uh, in the Wrigley business. And so we asked, well, okay, that's fine. Uh, we're going to work in Kenya. So where 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 can we actually work? And as we sat down with the leadership of the, the local leadership in Kenya uh, of Wrigley. Uh, they basically said, you know, we, we love what we're hearing about this project, but we really have to deliver ambitious financial targets, and we don't want you to mess up what it is we're doing. So why don't you work in a place we've never worked before and probably never will, which were the large, sprawling slum areas that are around um, Nairobi, which actually are the largest slums in all of Africa. They have, I think, two and a half million really impoverished people with no visible social ca- no visible financial capital, no visible human capital, no visible uh, natural capital. and some. Uh, social capital, uh, which you find uh, among impoverished communities as people uh, are living hand to mouth and this is in a way the kind of most challenging business environment that you could imagine and chewing gum was the product that we were given to work with, and the idea was to set up a route to market business that would move the product and sell it from the factory through distributors in these slum areas to retailers, which are typically you know supermarkets and, and other types of outlets outside of slum areas, but in impoverished areas. These are kind of like kiosks that are run by people who will only trust and work with those that they grew up with. And so um, a company like Mars Wrigley, you know, had no social capital, had no trust in that kind of community. Uh, Master distribution wouldn't work in that type of community because the master distributor wouldn't want to take the high risks and the low margins uh, of actually trying to move goods into areas that could be dangerous, uh, frankly. And so we really had to turn the thinking of the business on its head and start from scratch. So we started by, um, by um, mapping out the different stakeholders in that type of a community who would actually have what it was we were missing to, to help us collaborate. And they were not the kind of partners that are cash and carry that you would typically find in a, uh, in a business activity, in any type of business activity. Actually, we we had to work with citizen sector organizations. In one instance, it was an NGO, for example, that that had a lot of trust among people in the community because they were only there to help lift unemployed single mothers off the streets uh, by giving them job opportunities. But actually, they were not able to achieve their objective on their own because uh, they just didn't have enough job opportunities that they could offer these unemployed single mothers. So they were attracted into the program, uh, a way in which they could access better jobs and we could use in a very mutual, reciprocally beneficial way, uh, economics and mutuality, uh, we could utilize their social capital that they had within that community to uh, help recruit and train people who could be micro-distributors for this chewing gum product. Uh, the next uh, sort of pain point that we discovered in this ecosystem of stakeholders that we were constructing for this business was that there was no um, credit worthiness of the micro-distributors. They were so poor, they had nothing to collateralize, and they had it for a loan, and they had no money to even purchase a bicycle with a basket on it so they could pedal out to a Centralized stock point, pick up chewing gum, and take it in, and then use their social capital, their trust with the uh, with the kiosk owners to sell their product well we 're not a bank and, uh, and we didn 't want to um, guarantee loans, but we found a uh, a micro lender a microfinance lender that was there to execute x number of micro loans to impoverished people and was failing at being able to do that effectively because they couldn 't crack the the lack of collateral. And uh, they, with their business model, they couldn't figure out how to execute enough microloans to make it useful in that community. So they loved the idea of partnering with us in a hybrid fashion, uh, because uh, they basically said, okay, there's a big Western multinational that is bringing people into a program and training them to be micro distributors. If you simply certify to us, the micro lender, that these people are in your program, then we will guarantee them a microloan so that they can, they can buy that bicycle with a basket or whatever it it may be, so they can become an effective micro-distributor. Suddenly, we solved one of their problems. They solved a problem for the micro-distributor and also solved a problem for us. And then just a last example for illustrative purposes, because there are many I can cite, is uh, we happen to have contact with a, a mega-church that was on the on the border of the of the slum area. And many uh, impoverished, uh, younger, very entrepreneurial uh, Kenyans were attending that church and being mentored by people in that church And I happen to just personally know, uh, as a friend, the the lead pastor of that church, and I was sharing with him one day when we were in Kenya, you know, what we were doing with this program we called MAWA, uh, which means Blossoming Flower, that was the name of the program. And uh, he was very taken by it, and he said, look, how about if we partner our church called Mavuno with the Wrigley business on the ground, and we can become a feeder to help you scale up your program, and in exchange, we'll continue to mentor these uh, young men and women uh, that you're recruiting into the program and help keep them on the straight and narrow And so it actually turned out in a secular business context to be a a very useful partnership that was very mutually beneficial between a church and a company uh, on the ground in a slum area. And so we basically set this up. We then changed the key performance indicators and we said, look, we'll track the KPIs that businesses normally use, like uh, retained earnings and sales, for example. But we're not going to hold the managers responsible for delivering those as part of their incentive system. We want them to deliver social and human capital, you know, to grow the trust, social cohesiveness and the capacity to work collectively of the communities within which the businesses are operating. And uh, and also we want them to grow the individual well-being uh, of, the, of the workers there. And we found that by getting rid of master distribution, we actually had lower overhead costs and we could pass on some financial capital benefits in terms of higher margins. To the micro distributors, which meant quite a lot to people who are living hand to mouth uh, on the edge. And ultimately, just uh, to show you how it worked in the, in the end, is uh, as we started to track social and human capital growing in this program, it started to scale up and we started to see sales and retained earnings take off to the point where this business created from scratch using these economics and mutuality principles, metrics, and management practices was outperforming the neighboring part of the business by a factor of two in terms of the retained earnings. Even though the other part of the business was operating with all the advantages that we didn't have, uh, such as master distribution, good infrastructure, wealthier consumers, better brand recognition, all those things as they were trying to maximize the profit of that business through traditional means, uh, we were performing uh, two times better in terms of retained earnings. And then we took this to the other end of the scale. And we worked with the crown jewel in the kind of Mars pet care portfolio, because Mars is known for chocolate and uh, confectionery and chewing gum, but it actually has the largest pet care uh, kind of segment uh, uh, in, in its entire portfolio. It's about a $20 billion segment the last time I checked. And one of the uh, companies inside uh, that segment is called Royal Canin. It's about a 4 or $5 billion company. It's a nutraceutical, very high-nutrition pet food uh, company uh, headquartered in France. And it's so uh, high quality in terms of the nutritional value for pets that actually, uh, it doesn't even have to do advertising. Uh, that it uh, it allows veterinarians and breeders and others to uh, to promote the product through word of mouth because it makes the pets uh, healthier. And so it's kind of a social capital oriented business where where people really trust the product. But you have to be very wealthy to afford it because it costs maybe eighty euros for a bag of dog food uh, from this. So you're only going to really be able to afford this kind of pet food uh, in a very mature, uh, very uh, wealthy consumer markets. Very different from what we were operating uh, in in Kenya. But basically, we, we use the same sort of operating principles, which really start with putting purpose at the center of the way the business should be thinking about its ecosystem of stakeholders, rather than putting itself at the center and its profit at the center of the center. So this is kind of like a Copernican revolution in thinking. If you remember, Nicholas Copernicus was the 16th century astronomer who, who, who figured out that actually the sun was at the center of the solar system, not the earth. When he did that, everything fell into place. All the mathematics made sense and everything else. Similarly, when you put purpose at the center of a business ecosystem, everything makes sense. And you have the right lens through which you can identify what the right stakeholders are to help you as a business unit to deliver that shared purpose that's bringing these stakeholders together. And so then we map them out in a, uh, in a kind of an ecosystem map who this, the right stakeholders are using that lens of purpose and um, and then we conducted clinical interviews with a subset of those stakeholders to find out what their pain points are. As you remember, in the Kenya example, you know some had pain points that were financial capital related. Some had uh, social capital related pain points, and we knitted together sort of interventions and relationships uh, that uh, that solved those pain points and helped heal the problems within that ecosystem among the different stakeholders. And when we did that, when we solved one another's problems in reciprocally beneficial mutually beneficial ways. Actually, entrepreneurialism was allowed to flourish and the ecosystem became much more highly performant. And you saw that also reflected in the financial performance by solving the problems of the others rather than just trying to extract value from them. And that's really central to what it is we're doing.
1: And I, I love that picture of putting purpose at the center of the business. And I I did a lunch webinar in, in December with Michaela Olba, who's the former chief ethics officer at Volvo and Telia and so on. And and she made the point that unless you challenge the widely held beliefs about what the purpose of a company is, which is to make the most profit for its shareholders, your values will never mean anything. And I've come to very much the same conclusion that many times our purpose statements, our value statements are add-ons that we kind of put on to attract new employees or or new customers, but they're never really allowed to challenge the fundamental beliefs of who we are and what we are and why we are as a company. And what do you believe is vital for these values and purpose statements to actually give direction, to actually mean something for the organization, not just become something that we kind of put on top to look good to the outside world?
0: That's a very insightful question. Thanks for sharing it. Uh, you know, we've had an academic partnership for the last seven years with Oxford University's Business School to help us create a, uh, a management theory and teachable curriculum around this as well. And one of our uh, our core partners at Oxford, uh, a professor there, who is one of the the early deans of that university, you know, he said something at, at one point about purpose as we were as we were talking about it that really stuck in my mind, and I I tend to uh, to to share this uh, whenever I'm speaking, especially to a room of CEOs, for example. Uh, to kind of challenge their their, uh, paradigm. And really, it's that the purpose of business, the purpose of business is not to create profit, as shocking as that might sound. The purpose of business is to create profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet, not to profit by creating problems for people and planet. So let me just say that one more time. The purpose of business is not to create profit, it's to create profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet, not to profit by creating problems for people and planet, and that's that kind of wakes them up, and re- and really uh, cuts to the heart of the question because purpose is so central to what we're doing. Economics of mutuality is really about putting purpose into practice and aligning a company's purpose and the man- the behavior of its managers. Okay, so it's not a very easy thing to do, and part of that is because you know we look at lots and lots of purpose statements and none of them actually say. To maximize profit for distribution to shareholders, which is what their business model actually delivers. Okay. And if you think about the PL, you know, the profit and loss statement, the accounting, management accounts for a company, it's like a filter for the purpose. And the purpose goes through this purely financial uh, PL and it comes out the other side with a set of incentives that managers have to deliver purely profit-driven motives uh, and outcomes that can often be completely contrary to the purpose that the company says it stands for. So what happens when consumers start to realize that the purpose statements of businesses actually are not being delivered by those businesses through its business model behaviors? Well, the business will then create an even bigger, more ambitious purpose that it's not suited to deliver. And it becomes almost like a Ponzi scheme for uh, for, for purpose. So this really, really needs to be challenged at its core. And, you know, most purpose statements of companies are drafted in such a way to be inspiring or descriptive. So they're often value statements, for example. Uh, You know, even even the one that Mars uh, has is called, um, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the world we want tomorrow starts with how we do business today. Okay, it's fine. It's a value statement, but by itself, it's not actionable at a business unit level. If you kind of take it down the pet care example, the pet segment has taken the world we want tomorrow, starts with how we do business today, and it's added a layer and said, a better world for pets. Okay, again, that's great. It's aspirational, but it's not very practical at the business unit level to be able to practically apply that. So when we started working with this Royal Canin business, for example, uh, we wanted to cascade from the corporate purpose through the segment purpose and come up with something that was what we call a meaningful challenge, something that would be outside in, that would help solve the problem of another. And so we, we created with the, with the Royal Canin business a purpose statement that was more like improving the health of cats and dogs. Uh, and it's implied through through nutrition, because this is a nutrition product. And suddenly we had something there that could actually be actionable, that could be at the center of an ecosystem that could be the lens to determine who those stakeholders are, and off we go. You know one other example I'll give you is uh, is one that I'm particularly impressed with. There's a Danish um, uh, company uh, that um, uh, sells insulin, okay to uh, to combat diabetes, and uh, this this Danish company, I uh, only got so far with its business model when its purpose statement was really um about how it was delivering more and more, how it was selling more and more insulin to treat diabetes, okay, to treat the symptoms. And it actually kind of had a had an epiphany, it had a revelation purpose to be about helping to solve diabetes, okay. And that's a it seems uh, like a small difference, but actually it's a huge one, because they repositioned the company around the purpose that was a meaningful challenge that was aligned with all of the stakeholders in the ecosystem, because these stakeholders were buying insulin from this company and from competitor companies because it needed to treat a systemic health problem. But really, those stakeholders were there because they were trying to eradicate diabetes. And they were much more inspired by a purpose statement from a supplier that was in alignment with what their ultimate goal was, which for the company, counterintuitively might put them all out of business if they succeed in eradicating diabetes. But nonetheless, that's what they felt they were in business to do, was eradicate this health problem. And that brought it together in alignment with the purpose of its stakeholders uh, in its ecosystem. And suddenly its business took off because everybody wanted to work with this with this company, <laughs> with this insulin company. So I just wanted to give you that example that uh, that there are other companies that That are starting to get this purposeful business. And when they do, actually, they wind up performing better even along traditional uh, means by delivering more value from a social capital, human capital, or natural capital perspective.
1: I I love those examples, and I think that a problem with values and and purpose statements is that we often want to assume that we live by them. And I've talked to Anton Brunsell. She's a professor, done fantastic work when it comes to uh, researching ethics and why we think that we're more ethical than what we actually are. And she she basically says that that while we have positive uh, like assumptions about a lot of traits, we have hyper illusions about our own ethicality. And I think one of the issues is that values and purpose statements often becomes something that we we don't really want to measure it because we don't really want to have to live up to it. It becomes more of inspirational statements. And even, unfortunately, sometimes it becomes like a shield that we can hold up whenever somebody accuses us of something. We can say, oh, that's not in line with our values. But we're actually not measuring or assessing whether we live up to, that, to them. And something that I find so interesting, and you have been alluding to that before, how as a part of the economics of mutuality, Mars actually created, in a sense, you could say, uh, metrics to look at how are we living up to our values, how are we living up to our purpose. Could you talk a little bit about what that looks like at the Mars Corporation and through the economics of mutuality?
0: Metrics are so central to what it is that we're doing, and so as I mentioned earlier, human, social, and natural capital. We've developed sets of metrics around each one of them that actually together. Uh, are only a small number i think it's uh 15 metrics uh we've been able to get it down to that small a number to account for these three forms of non-financial capital and that's quite quite amazing when you think about uh, the types of metrics that are being used uh, by uh by in, in in the form of integrated reporting and uh and elsewhere i mean there are hundreds of metrics that uh, that, that are being utilized and that and having so many metrics really removes uh, the ability to standardize and to really compel companies to um to to be comparable with one another uh, because you can pick and choose when you have so many metrics, uh, which ones make you look the best. So this really kind of forces you into something that's much more structured and, and comparable. Another piece of this really, uh, I think that uh, to get at your question is uh, what we call the mutual PL. Uh, so I, I talked a bit about the profit and loss statement and the management accounts. Um, that really helps uh, be a filter for, is, is a filter for, for purpose uh, and then delivers the kind of incentive system for managers to deliver. This is really critical, this is a critical and newer part of economics and mutuality, which is which is creating another line in your management accounts' p and l that you can compare with the financial impact uh, in that p and l statement of the business activity, whatever it may be, that we call the mutual p and l, which is a calculation of the cost uh, of or the value uh, or the destruction of the social, human, or natural capital that comes with whatever that business activity is. Now, uh, I'll give you just a basic example for illustrative purposes. Let's say you have a, a coffee growing business and coffee plantations are very water intensive. So you plant them close to a like maybe a river in a community for a water source. And after you pick the coffee beans, you let them dry uh, near the bank of the water of the river. And then you have to wash, you have to extract water from the local water source, wash the acidity, off of these beans. And then you wind up dumping this highly acidic water, which is now polluted, back into the, into the water of the river. And, uh, and it, it, you become a net user of natural capital because you're damaging the water table there. But that's not reflected in your P&L. And you may remember, I said earlier, that we one of the big discoveries as we were able to measure non-financial capitals was we found this correlation between uh, growing or, or destroying uh, non-financial capitals and either growing or diminishing your your financial uh, and economic output. And so if you don't have this mutual profit line, uh, which we calculate using like a hypothetical cost of replacement of whatever that capital is that you're you're damaging, then the P&L and the managers who operate under it are blind to the impact both positively and negatively on their bottom line because they just don't realize that the impact of the social, human, and natural capital. And then you could even say that in this simple example I gave you, if you pollute the water of a local community, then maybe that local community is going to trust that company less, and the social capital is going to go down. And that's going to have an impact on the, uh, uh, on the economic performance of that business. And then maybe the individual well-being of people in that community is also going down because of the polluted water uh, and the lack of social capital of trust. So your human capital is going down as well. So if you can create this mutual PL, single bottom line PL, where you have a financial profit line and you have a mutual profit line. And sometimes a business activity has the mutual profit line below the financial profit line. Sometimes it has it above it, as in the case of that MAWA program I outlined in, uh, in the slums of Nairobi. Actually, the human and social capital being delivered by that business is higher than the financial profit and is helping pull the financial profit up of that uh, business activity. But by simply accounting for the mutual profit impact in your PL, you're, you're compelling your managers to have the transparency they need to drive different types of conversations that actually deliver different kinds of management decisions and behaviors that we believe ultimately will align those management behaviors and decisions more with what the purpose of the company is. And that's what we're after here.
1: That's, that's fantastic. Could I just ask you, what have been some other maybe important learnings for you, about what makes values and purpose matter as you've been on this journey with Mars and with the economics of mutuality?
0: Well, I think the biggest one for me uh, personally is that um, life is really meant to be about the means, not about the ends. And very often in life, um, businesses and other types of organizations will say the ends justify the means. I mean, that's a very popular phrase these days. And I actually have come to learn that actually it's uh, the ends don't justify the means. That actually, uh, if we're faithful to the means, how we treat others uh, in any sort of life activity, that actually uh, we'll, we'll get almost uh, what you could call a double blessing uh, uh, in terms of the ends. The ends will take care of themselves if we're faithful to the means. And this is really important in a business context because, you know, I, I also um, come from a perspective that, uh, that there's a natural order to everything in life, just like there's a natural order to the economy. And in that natural order... Financial capital is meant to be at the bottom, and it's there in a very important role, but subsidiary role, subservient role, to the economy, which through business is there to support the planet and ultimately its people at the top, okay? But after 50 years of financial capitalism, in its very rudimentary 1.0 form that was created 50 years ago by Milton Friedman to address a form of scarcity that no longer exists, which was money, (laughs) but doesn't account for the forms of scarcity that exist today, which didn't exist then... Uh, which are, you know, labor talent that matches jobs being created in the global economy today and natural resources, which are in acute scarcity. The natural order has been reversed. And you have basically people and planet at the bottom of the, of the hierarchy of, of relevance, of importance, supporting the economy, which supports through business, finance, which if anything supports itself as an idol at the top of the system. And that is not going to be sustainable. It is not going to stand. And already we're seeing with the pandemic and the and the massive amount of debt that com- countries are carrying these days, uh, that, that already the value of money is now no longer underpinned by anything, and there's far too much of it in the global economy. So the only value money has these days is the confidence that consumers have in it, that it has value. If that confidence is shaken, the val- the real value of money will be far less than it is today. But under the new rules of the game of the global economy, social capital, human capital, natural capital, these are becoming more valuable, not less. So we've got to to really be faithful to a, a model that expands the definition of performance that will help ensure the writing of this uh, inverted natural order of things and puts finance back where it belongs and people and planet back where it, they belong at the top.
1: And I I mean, I, I know that saying that, of course, it's, it's very important to, I think, to state as well that as we talk about Mars, Mars is far from an NGO. I mean, it is a, a very profitable business that has a lot of targets and 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 everything and and still we can have this this type of conversation and i think that it connects to something that i think is so important for our audience and for leaders to think about that we talk a lot about values we talk a lot about different statements but i think it's also very important to think about what are the underlying and beliefs and assumptions that drive how we operate, how we do business, how we build our organizations. Because at the bottom, also when we think about our organizational and corporate culture, at the bottom are those beliefs and assumptions that actually drive our behavior. And I think that's what I hear in what you're saying, that that's a journey that Mars has been on to really look at those beliefs, look at those assumptions and see what is it that this is really kind of, what what, what are we really building how we operate on and what kind of outcomes is it creating? And and I just want to ask you, uh, Jay, before we wrap, it, wrap this up, that what would you like to encourage our audience of, of leaders of HR and compliance professional to take as maybe a first step if they want to make their values or their purpose matter, or let's say like this, if they want to work with these issues on a deeper, more fundamental level that can actually impact their organization?
0: I think the first thing to stress here is that uh, this isn't just a clever way to make more money. I mean, this is really fundamentally about healing, okay? It's about a way through a business model a management innovation that you can begin to heal businesses' broken relationship with people and broken relationship with the land, with the planet. And also, I find that when people actually treat one another well, that they put the priority on the means rather than on the ends, that they actually are healed themselves. And people who are more healed are more performant. (laughs) People that are happier and have greater well-being are more performant uh, in every way. So this is not charity. This is not an altruistic business model initiative. It's not philanthropy, and it's not about corporate reputation. It's fundamentally about changing or evolving the model to a more complete form of capitalism, now, I also come from a from a, um, a way of thinking, a paradigm that says that there's a responsibility of knowledge, that uh, that maybe you have less responsibility to behave in a certain way when you're really ignorant of the fact that there is another way. And now I think we are on the precipice here of another very viable pathway that actually is a superior form of value creation. And what I mean by that is that holistically, it creates more value for people and planet and by doing so actually creates more economic value as well, even in the short term is what our findings are determining. So now that, uh, that your listeners know that there's a better way of doing this in a more evolved form of capitalism, we're simply evolving and making um, uh, larger and more inclusive your definition of performance to include social, human and natural capital as well as financial capital for shareholders, also addressing stakeholders in this manner. But actually, you get a more resilient business and very likely a more profitable one. So I would just like to challenge people to open their minds to the fact there's another business, there's another business model, there's another way uh, to, to do this, uh, where you can stay true to your principles. You can treat others well, and by doing so, you can wind up with, with better outcomes. Now, um, I'd also point out the fact that, uh, that you know, 67 of the world's largest economies today, of the, of the 100 uh, largest economies, so 67% of the world's largest economies today are multinational corporations. And when Friedman created his model 50 years ago, I doubt any multinational corporation was in the top 100 of largest economies. So, you know, we can no longer afford, uh, nor is it morally right to say that the sole social responsibility of business is to maximize shareholder return. Actually, only businesses now can meaningfully address the real challenges, systemic challenges of people and planet that we face from a society level. And so they've got a responsibility, but also an opportunity to do this. Now, Mars has allowed us to um, really view economics and mutuality as a non-rival good, which in business parlance really means uh, that it's more valuable to Mars uh, if it's shared with others openly rather than um, uh, kept as uh, intellectual property for competitive advantage. And so in August of 2020, we moved uh, our entire internal think tank unit, which had been part of Mars since the 1960s, outside of Mars with uh, Mars financing, but without Mars control for the next five years into a open collaborative platform headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland, but with a global presence. And this is basically a hybrid construct that has taken all the intellectual property, but other learnings that are open and put it in a public benefit foundation called the EOM Foundation, Economics and Mutuality Foundation. That's a nonprofit that actually owns a for-profit EOM Solutions Consultancy that has no shareholders and is required uh, under the Swiss law to uh, distribute all of its profits either to the foundation or to reinvest it in growing the capability. So in this way, we can protect the integrity of economics and mutuality, and we can share it. We can deliver it. Uh, at a business unit level, through the consultancy. And we can also grow that capability through the profit that that makes. But at the same time, through the foundation, we can share as much of it as possible openly, work with universities to and you know, business schools and management schools to, uh, to develop, to develop um, teaching curriculum uh, around this and uh, to fund new research streams to advance the thinking uh, even more. So that's what we're doing now. And I just encourage anyone who's interested in joining this movement, because that's what we're doing here. We're working on a on developing a global movement around a new way of doing business. Uh, please uh, join us. You can find us pretty easily on the web on eom.org is our, our website. And uh, you can also, you know, look for our books. We uh, have a new book coming out February 11th. Oxford University Press will publish it. It's called Putting Purpose into Practice, The Economics of Mutuality. And uh, I published a book with our chief economist, uh, Morris Bruno Roche, back in 2017, which is called completing capitalism, heal business to heal the world. So, uh, feel free to get in touch. We'd, we'd love to have your input.
1: Thank you so much, Jay. And I, I think one of the things that I take out of this conversation is that if if our purpose and our value statements are not reflected in our business model, there is a a, a serious disconnect, and the values and the purpose statements will not really have any value. So thank you so much for spending this time and and just uh, wishing you all success in the great and important work that you do.
0: Thank you, Tobias. It's a privilege. really enjoyed the discussion.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leading leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.